I am a proper sucker for myths and legends. I, if there's a myth or legend about the place, I want to hear it. I absolutely love stories of things like that. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a fortnightly series looking at unfamiliar places around the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. We're quite into spring up here in Scotland, which means that we've had some days of quite nice weather, comfortably warm, we're talking mid-teens Celsius, dry, sunny, slight breeze, very pleasant. It's great for walking, which I've been doing a bit of lately. Partly because the daylight lasts a while up here between the equinoxes, and partly because this year I've been feeling quite fat and unfit. I've realised the advantage of dungarees is that they fit far more casually around the waist, and I don't need to worry about tight trousers. The disadvantage is the extra hassle it has to have a wee. I'm writing this podcast a week and a half in advance, despite it being at least two weeks late in the first place. Part of me is hoping the two cancel each other out. Obviously they won't. Anyway, I've had a very tiring few weeks, culminating in four days filled with that most awesome of combinations, walking, beer and friendship. Albeit sandwiched between two overnight buses. I know why I take the overnight buses, it's because they're cheap. It's not just the cost of them themselves, although £19 for a bus as compared to, you know, £75 for a train. It's itself a huge cost saving. It's also the saving of accommodation costs too. If I travel overnight, I don't need to spend an extra night in a hotel at destination. Plus it maximises my time. When you're travelling between Glasgow and London, even the train can take upwards of five hours. And if you're travelling in the daytime, that's five hours less time to spend exploring. Or, it must be said, drinking socially. The downside is that I'm about six foot three or one meter ninety, and buses and coaches aren't an ideal place to spend eight hours, especially if you book the seat with extra legroom and get shunted onto a coach that doesn't have any for efficiency purposes. I mean, okay, so I got back to Glasgow over an hour earlier than I was due to, but at what cost to my legs and my mental health? I barely sleep on buses at the best of times. Still, it cleared my podcast backlog, and it's more comfortable and less hassle than an aeroplane, and obviously a lot cheaper. London itself was grand. I spent the time with my friend Laura, who long-time listeners to this pod will know well. On the Friday we walked around Kensington, the Saturday saw us in the City of London, and the Sunday had us going to Hampstead Heath, Primrose Hill and explicitly not Camden Town. Despite the Sunday being Easter Sunday, and despite the weather being pretty good, there were far fewer people on Hampstead Heath than we expected. Or maybe it's just so big that we didn't notice them. On the Monday, we took a day trip to the cute ex-seaside port of Rye. Once one of the main ports on the Sussex and Kent coasts, the harbour silted up a few centuries back, so now it lies a couple of miles from the sea. This has preserved its medieval charm. It's full of cobbled streets, old stone cottages and tourists. I realised, by the way, I forgot to mention in my last episode that a month ago, on the last weekend in March, and at the start of my busy few weeks away, that meant that my last podcast was a fortnight late, I did some hiking in Yorkshire. The local branch of the Yes Tribe, that bunch of life-affirming people who inspired me to do the hike across Great Britain in the summer of 2019, had arranged to take a day hiking the Yorkshire Three Peaks. These are nominally the three highest mountains in Yorkshire, and are close enough to each other that it's possible to hike them all in a loop in the course of a day. A long day, but still a day. I'd only been at one of them before, Penny Ghent, on that British hike, as the Pennine Way goes right up it. And my experience then had been in torrential rain and with views from the trig point at the top that just about reached the bottom of the trig point. The other two, Wernside and Ingleborough, which both sound more like they should be small towns rather than mountains, are the other side of the railway and the main road, and we only saw them in the background on that hike. Each of the mountains is around 700 metres high, and while you're not attacking them from sea level each time, all three are certainly quite a strenuous effort, albeit in different ways. The loop tends to start at the village of Horton in Ribblesdale, and the generally accepted route is around 24 to 25 miles. 
The aim is to complete it in daylight, and I'm happy to report we technically did. We set off around 7.40am and it took us a shade over 11 and a half hours. We didn't need our head torches at any point, and it only became too dark to see pretty much only as we arrived back in Horton. There was a good group of us doing it, 12, 13 of us or so, and we kept pretty much together. And having quite a few people around made it an easier journey, as we could chat to each other, motivate each other and so on. Doing it alone is definitely possible, and I'd probably even been quicker, but I think part of it would have just been that much harder mentally. It was definitely an enjoyable day, though, though I did think afterwards the whole concept felt a bit like a tick box exercise, and I wonder if you'd get more pleasure out of it by going each one separately and taking time to enjoy the experience. And no, I didn't do it barefoot. There's an awful lot of gravel and scree on them there hills. I am sure, though, if I'm remembered in a couple of hundred years' time, though heck knows why anyone would, there'll be myths and legends around me, my adventures and my barefootedness. There was a late-period Viking king, Magnus Barefoot. I've mentioned him on my pods about Scotland, as he was an important figure in the history of the West Coast. One of the myths about him is that he got his name from always riding into battle barefoot. It's more likely, though, that it's a synonym for bare-legged, i.e. wearing whatever the 11th century equivalent of shorts or capris were much like the dungaree shorts I'm wearing as I write this pod, actually. Though I'm not about to rage into battle holding a sword aloft, I doubt you've actually the strength to do that, though my arms are all stronger than they were this time last year, at least. Anyway, myths and legends are strange things. They might start with a kernel of truth and end up being a whole bloated mass of competing stories and highly improbable events. I'm sure part of it is just some very good spin doctors, but also, especially with both oral tales and stories of the common citizen, If anything gets written down at all, it's been lost in time, so every retelling obscures the truth just that little bit more. And that's even as if the original memories are accurate anyway. We see it even today with memes, with children's games, with little things half-remembered that were deemed either too unimportant to make a permanent note of, or possibly the other way, things so common, at least amongst the subset of the population, as to be wildly understood at the time with the expectation they'd always be remembered. What does the childhood game Oranges and Lemons mean? Will anyone in 200 years' time know how the Lost Meme originated? What were, in terms of 1990s teen culture, a friendship book and the related slam? In terms of the latter, I've probably still got a couple somewhere. This podcast episode is not going to answer those questions, because it's clearly not Rhyme Remit, and having a podcast on pen palling is very niche, even for me. However, we will be talking about a few local interesting myths and legends that are of particular interest to me and a couple of friends, either because they're local to where they live or grew up, or because they're things that they found out about and are fascinated by. One example of the former comes from my friend Dana, who grew up in Michigan in north central USA. Here's a couple of tales from there to get you into the groove. So myths and folklore has always kind of been my thing since I was a kid. It's something I always find fascinating. Some ones specific to Michigan are the Nain Rouge. It's French translated means red dwarf. It is specific to Detroit, Michigan. Um, supposedly the appearance of it is said to foretell misfortune of some sort, either on a large scale or a small scale. Um, but according to the folklore, Detroit's founder Antoine de la Moth Cadillac, which side note, there's also a city called Cadillac in Michigan, I was told by a fortune teller that he was going to run into this creature and that he should appease it. Like, in no uncertain terms, do not antagonize. Unfortunately, for him at least, uh, he didn't listen. And upon encountering the Nayan Rouge, Cadillac smacked it with his cane, like any dumb white male, and (laughs) shouted, Get out of my way, you red imp. Frankly, anyone that's even vaguely familiar with fairy folklore uh knows that's a giant big no-no we call them the good folk for a reason and he according to the folklore of course uh as a consequence had a string of really bad luck he was charged with abuse of power which if it's true he's smacking people that are in his way that doesn't surprise me and he was reassigned to louisiana later he was returned to france where he was briefly imprisoned and eventually lost his entire fortune. Uh, Detroit currently now has a festival for the Nain Rouge, but it's not really celebrating the creature or imp. The guy that started the festival, he puts it out as it's more of like a giant cathartic process for 
Detroit to yell at either someone dressed up as the imp or they'll have effigies and just yell and say like, get out, go away. You're causing all the badness in Detroit. Leave. I know in earlier festivals of it, they used to burn effigies. I believe they shut that down uh, due to safety reasons. But yeah, that's basically what the festival is. It's kind of like the Krampus festivals that pop up, but does not celebrate the Nain Rouge. There is a counter festival for the Nain Rouge, and they kind of come out and protest and say, hey, the Nain Rouge is a good guy. We should all come together. Like, you know, basically going back to the folklore and saying, hey, the fortune teller said to appease this person, not yell abuse at it. So, but that is Detroit's own Nain Rouge. Michigan also has our own version of a werewolf called the Michigan Dogman. It has been popping up since about 1887 in Wexford County. It was That's where it was first allegedly witnessed. And according to the folklore, it appears in a 10-year cycle and falls on the years ending in seven. So, but it's basically your kind of basic werewolf. It's seven feet tall, bipedal canine-like creature, torso of a man, so it's a little bit different, and supposedly has blue or amber eyes. And it's basically seen in like... A lot, uh, several different locations, but primarily in the northwestern quadrant of the Lower Peninsula. We also have a, another folktale in Lower Peninsula before we pop up to the UP. It's a little bit sadder, though. It is called the, uh, the Melonheads. These are basically children that were supposedly uh, residing in a Roundfelt Mansion. Um, it's, southern or forest areas in Ottawa County. But according to the story, these children had hydrocephalus. hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Basically giant bulbous heads. And they lived at the Junction Insane Asylum near the Felt Mansion. Uh, the way the story goes is that after enduring a lot of physical and emotional abuse, which I think most of us know that these asylums did tend to do, maybe it was done in a well-intentioned manner, but it still happened. But after enduring this, they became feral. And there's two stories. One was that they just kind of broke out or were released into the forest surrounding the asylum. The other is that they basically attacked the doctor that, you know, did all this heinous stuff to them. And either ate him or cut him up and hid his body around Felt Mansion. Now, the Allegheny County Historical Society that is in that area asserts that they're never was an asylum but there was a prison up there at some point so maybe it still has some truth i don't know really it's more of a urban legend that teenagers tell themselves you'll go up to the area if you park your car supposedly they'll come out something that you kind of just do for fun However, because the legend is still pretty well known throughout Michigan, it has become the subject of a 2011 film titled The Melonheads. You will also see this folklore pop up in Ohio and Connecticut, oddly enough. Going outside the Lower Peninsula up into the Upper Peninsula, Michigan has sightings of Bigfoot, believe it or not. Bigfoot is not just in the Pacific Northwest. He uh, apparently also likes to hang out in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And along with him, since we're going to mention some of the more famous ones, apparently Loch Ness is not the only, you know, lock with a possible sea monster. Michigan has their own Pressy, who is uh, known to be in the Pascal Isle River. And supposedly it exists. It's like white-tailed, a horse-headed creature, but it's found in Lake Superior. And I mean, the Great Lakes are known to be pretty treacherous at times, deep. I mean, Gordon Lightfoot did write the Edmund Fitzgerald and does say that, you know, the lake does not give up their dead. And that is very true. So who knows? Maybe we're hosting a lake monster as well. (laughs) Doubtful, but you never know. When I was growing up, I lived with my uncle and he was born in 1954, so the 70s are his decade. A fact that resonates in his music tastes. He's not the sort of person to listen to Taylor Swift. He even got bored of Bruce Springsteen sometimes around uh, streets of Philadelphia and thinks Genesis stopped being listenable when Peter Gabriel left. Listener, I don't know if you've ever listened to mid-70s Genesis, but if you like songs like Land of Confusion and Invisible Touch, you'd hate how they started with tracks like I Know What I Like in Your Wardrobe and The Return of the Giant Hogweed 
which at over eight minutes is now the soundtrack to my recent experience in the Forest of Dean that will alienate you immeasurably. But apart from prog rock, he's also a fan of 1970s English and Celtic folk rock. You know, Fairport Convention, Albion Band, Alan Stivell, Dick Gochen. If you've never heard of them, don't frettle. Folk music is generally all about only one of five topics. Sex, death, beer, harvesting and piracy. Often several at once. It tends to be either very upbeat and cheerful and what few nuts that poor girl had she threw them all away hashtag no context or incredibly depressing and for the murder of that pretty fair maid a hanged I shall be. Obviously the whole genre of music lends itself well to folk tales and therefore to myths and legends. One of the first songs I remember hearing that combines this was the rendition by Furport Convention of the tale of Tam Lynn. This is a story from the Scottish borders of a man who is charmed by the Queen of the Fairies to take the virginity of any woman who passes through the woodland at Carter Hall, a real place consisting of maybe two houses and a river junction, and who eventually will be donated as a tithe to hell. Anyway, one day this woman called Janet turns up nonchalantly and Tamlin falls in love. He does the deed, curiously never actually specified in the tale. It is purely magic, of course. And then, because he realises he's in love with her, tells her what she needs to do to outwit the Queen of the Fairies and enable them both to live happily ever after. This being one of the upbeat tales, the convoluted plot, which at one point involves him being turned into, in succession, a snake, a lion, and, of course, a naked knight, succeeds, and the Fairy Queen is defeated. As an aside, this contrasts with the second legend I heard from the same album, that of Matty Groves, which can be best summarised as Lord and Lady have unhappy marriage. Lady seduces commoner while Lord is away harvesting. Lady sleeps with commoner. Lord finds out and interrupts them in the act. Lord challenges commoner to duel with very favourable conditions to commoner. Lord wins. Lord tries to reconnect with Lady. Lady tells Lord to fuck off. Which, when you've just seen your hubby kill your lover and he's still holding the sword, you know, that's quite a... That takes some um, some balls, should I say. Um, Lord kills Lady, with lots of remorse. There's also the feeling that when you're lying in naked in bed with your boss's wife and your boss rushes in, complete with sword, the one thing that you don't do is answer back and be a smartass. Matty Groves also had balls, that's for sure. Possibly too much so. All very odd, especially to this arrow ace. Sex, death, harvesting. That's quite a tagline. Anyway, one of the bands he's been particularly fond of are one called the Horselips, a name created apparently because one of the band members tried to say the four horsemen of the apocalypse, but was drunk and ended up saying the four poxmen of the Horselips. The 70s were a special time. And I use that word quite politically incorrectly. But the Horselips are important to this podcast because they were a folk rock band who did a couple of concept albums in the 70s based around legendary and semi-mythical stories. I mean, as many bands did, to be honest, but the Horselips were Irish and took their inspiration directly from Irish mythology, telling their stories through the medium of guitar. They did two in particular, the second being the Book of Invasions. This was based on the tales in a collection called the Lebo Gabala Eren, which contains myths around the repeated conquest of Ireland by people from the sea. Although, given that one of these invaders is described as being the granddaughter of Noah, as in the Ark, one wonders quite how authentic they are. Uh, this, these tales include the Kesser, the Firbolg, and the Tuadidan. The latter group means people of the goddess of Danu. Each group in, is in turn conquered and either wiped out or forced to flee until the final group to invade, the Malaysians, defeat the Tuadadan and decide to uh, <clears throat> partition Ireland. And don't worry, this time it turned out quite well. The Malaysians keep everything above the ground, while the Tuadadan can keep everything below the ground. As such, the Milesians become the Irish, well, the Gaels at least, the early Irish, while the Tuat became the pagan gods, which is... An interesting negotiation strategy, to be fair. Danu herself is relatively unattested, but people have tried to link her with the Celtic water and mother goddess Don, which not only explains the popularity of river Dons in the British Isles, but also links back to a very ancient Hindu goddess, also called Danu, which is the Sanskrit word for rain. 
It's also a possible origin of the Irish usage of the forename Dana. I'm not saying my earlier contrib was from a goddess, but, well, you know. Um, But I digress, as usual. I mean, it's not an accident that my Dana contributed to my podcast on neurodiversity either. An earlier album, The Horse Lips Made, was simply called The Toyn. This is but one part of a whole series of related legends in Irish mythology, dating from around 2,000 years ago, called the Ulster Cycle. The Toyn itself is the tale of the cattle raid of Cooley, or what happens when two powerful lovers get into a pissing contest about who has the best cow. Remember, folks, cows are dangerous, but there's a whole wealth of backstory and context as well. Part of the backstory involves me learning how to pronounce lots of Irish names. Bear with me. Anyway, part of the backstory is around the goddess Macha, and this is a name that we'll come back to later. The Ulster Cycle tells about how she was common-law married to an Ulsterman, apparently called Criniac, and she was noted for her running speed. While in this relationship, Criniac grew rich and ended up in the circle of the King of Ulster, probably Conqueror Macnessa. When he organised a festival they attended, despite Macha being heavily pregnant. But Macha's instructions went unheeded when, after alcohol, obviously, Criniac boasted that his wife could beat any of the king's horses in a race. The king called his bluff upon pain of death, and Macha was forced to race. Though she won, she gave birth at the finish line to twins, cursed the men of Ulster to suffer, quote, like a woman in childbirth, unquote, at the time of their greatest need, and then promptly died, or at least in that part of her mortal form. Her curse will become important later. King Conqueror has his own mythologies, out with the Ulster Cycle, but one such within is around a woman called Deirdre, who he kind of has a crush on even from the time of her birth, which, you know, still. So he keeps her isolated until she comes of age, for that purpose, but then she elopes to Scotland, with her lover Nisha. The king sends troops after them, but although they're harried, they keep moving on and don't surrender. Eventually the king tricks them by sending a chap called Fergus McRoich to invite them back home with a guarantee of safe passage. But he manipulated events to separate Fergus and Deirdre on the journey from everybody else, and ensuring Nisha's murder. This was done without Fergus's knowledge, and one of the other people murdered was Fergus's own son. Unsurprisingly, he didn't take kindly to this, and he fled in exile to the neighbouring kingdom of Connacht. He will return to the story later as will Connacht. Meanwhile, Conqueror married a very pissed off but resigned Deirdre, I mean she's got no one else, who then spends the rest of her life being aggressively miserable before eventually telling Conqueror what she really thinks of him and then killing herself. It's cheerful this, isn't it? Meanwhile, in another story of the Ulster Cycle, King Conqueror has a nephew, Satanta. His whole childhood is itself subject to many myths and legends, not least his birth, which mostly involves the warrior and craftsman god Lug, one of the Tuatha de Dan mentioned earlier, who later does a Darth Vader, I am your father, revelation on him. But one small aspect of this was, due to circumstance, he was born literally just beyond the Ulster border in the kingdom of Meath. That's just a minor admin issue though, that's not going to affect anything. Another thing to bear in mind is, due to his slightly unusual birthing, he had a series of foster fathers, including his uncle, the king, but also Fergus McRoich, mentioned earlier. This too might be relevant later. With regards to the Ulster Cycle itself, though, one of the important myths from his youth was that, well, there was a smith called Chulan, and he hosted a party to which he invited the king. On his way there, he encountered his nephew, who was playing a game of hurling, and invited him along to the feast. Satanta said he'd come along once he'd finished the game. The king accepted this, and went on his merry way to the party. Now, Chulun was a well-to-do man, and to protect his property, he had a fierce and powerful guard dog, probably more akin to a wolf in all honesty, and about whom, yes, there are other myths. Anyway... Once everyone was at the party, Chulun released his wolfhound to guard them all, the king having forgotten to tell Chulun his nephew would be along later, even when asked. Obviously, then Setanta turned up, found everything locked, and then saw a fierce devil beast about to savage him. I don't know how much you know about hurling, but it's a Celtic sport, played on grass with a ball, but similar to hockey in that you use a stick to hit the ball with. Or each other. It's generally not the safest game in the world. Modern rules specify the use of a helmet, but don't seem to obligate shin guards. I would. 
So, here you have a savage wolfhound coming face to face with a tween-age demigod wielding what is effectively a hockey stick. Probably a good battle, but one obviously won by Setanta. However, when the party realised what was going on, Setanta was very contrite and apologetic, and offered to serve as Hullen's guard dog until such time as Hullen was able to obtain another mythical wolfhound. One assumes that he didn't actually become a dog, although I'm sure there's an overlap between furries and Irish mythology nerds, uh, and merely served as an overly active security guard, but it is hard to tell. But as a result of this hands-on form of work experience, he was given the nickname Hucholan, or Hound of Hullen, and became well known for his own ferocity and battle prowess. In a later tale, he's sent to Scotland, specifically the Isle of Skye, to be taught battle skills by the goddess Skacha, who my friend Dana often named herself after in early online days. All this backstory sets the stage for the main tale, all about cows. So, Methev, or Maeve, depending on the dialect, the Queen of Connacht in the west of Ireland, is lying in bed one night with her husband, Alil, when they start to discuss which of them is the richest. Because that's obviously what lovers do, vibrators and handcuffs not having been invented yet. Anyway, it turns out the only difference between them is Alil owns the great fertile bull Finvenug. Methov decides the only way she can top that is to borrow, and the actual meaning of that word is the cause of everything that happens next, the equally fertile Don Cooley, from its owner in the east of Ireland, in the Kingdom of Ulster. Her intention is to borrow it for a year, but the unspoken words are that she'll take it by force if she's not allowed to borrow it. Unfortunately, these words are spoken when the party she sends to collect it get drunk and accidentally spill the beans. The deal gets called off, and Methov carries through with her threat to invade Ulster and get the bull. Ulster raise an army to defend. Unfortunately, every single man of Ulster called up gets stricken with period pains. Yes, I know. But this is exactly the effect and application of Macha's curse, and an example of, no matter how weird the whole cycle seems, it is at least internally consistent and very deep and thorough. Every single man, that is. Except one. Guess who? Cúchulain is unaffected from the curse. And why? Well, remember his birth? Macha's exact words on the curse was that every man of Ulster would suffer at the kingdom's greatest need. Cúchulain is definitely at least part man, although a modern legend could easily make him trans or envy. But having been born in Meath, even by just a few yards, he's not a man of Ulster, and therefore free of the curse. How convenient. Anyway, he manages to hold off the entire Connacht army by engaging them in single combat at a narrow passage. Either a ford or a mountain pass, it's a little unclear. And because he's a big strong man by now, well, 17, and he has the gods on his side, Lug at one point healing his wounds to such an extent that he ends up powered with rage and he becomes the hound that his name implies. Anyone who's ever played D&D where one of the characters is a beast or berserker barbarian will kind of get the power vibe. He is both. Towards the end, two people are sent to challenge him. First up is Fergus McRoich, his foster father who fled to Connacht. Cúchulain agrees to yield to him if Fergus yields next time. Battle is avoided, Fergus passes. Finally, Cúchulain's foster brother Ferdia challenges him. The two grew up together and developed their fighting skills against each other, so they're closely matched. At first, Cúchulain refuses to fight him and tries to persuade Ferdia to not do this. But Ferdia's unwilling. He wants to fight. After three days, three days, Cúchulain is victorious, kills Ferdia, but instantly retires from the battle and the war through physical and emotional pain. By this time, the curse of Macha is fading, and the warriors of Ulster start to become battle-ready. King Conqueror rouses his troops and sets his stall out for retribution. It looks like there's going to be a huge final battle pitching the two armies against each other, but there is one final loose end to tie up. The Connacht army is led into battle by Fergus. This rouses Cúchulain, who steps in front and reminds Fergus it's his turn to yield. Knowing that you don't argue with a demigod, no matter what state they're in, he turns around and walks away. The Connacht army kind of loses the thirst for battle, breaks up and wanders off. But, you might ask, what of the cows, where this whole thing started? Well, exactly what you might expect to happen does happen. In all the confusion, Medva takes Don Cooley back to Connacht. So now they own both of the greatest bulls in the whole of Ireland. 
Medhav and Alil have drawn a stupid contest. Except that when you have two quite, one might say, alpha bulls in the same place at the same time, it's highly unlikely they're going to get along. After a huge fight, Don Cooley kills Finn Venug, but in doing so, ends up mortally wounded itself. And for reasons that seem to only make sense in Legendarium, does a tour of the island, dropping ripped off parts of Finn Venug as it goes, before finally dying back home in Connacht. The entire Ulster cycle thus ends up being a tale with no real winners, and the sense that the whole thing was completely pointless. Maybe that's a metaphor for life, who knows. Maybe the actual moral of the tale is to always take good care of your cows. Now, you might be wondering, but this is a travel podcast, this is all very interesting, but what does it have to do with you personally, other than your childhood? Well, remember at the start of February, I took a week travelling around Northern Ireland? I talked about the background to that trip a couple of episodes ago. Well, one of the places I visited was Armagh, which is very close to Navan Hillfort, and what is generally accepted to be the ancient capital of Ulster, Emmenmacher. The name obviously refers to the goddess Macha, and one possible explanation and derivation of the first element is a word that means... twins. In reality, it's likely to refer to a couple of hills or hillforts present in the area, but you can't keep a good, consistent mythology down, can you? We won't talk about the fact that it was named that after the King of Ulster was already there. I never said it was that consistent. The site is now a kind of museum. In the visitor centre, apart from the cafe, is a small museum talking about the discovery of the site and what they found here, as well as a potted history of the place. Outside, there's a replica hut built to ancient standards, apart from the obligatory bigger exit fire escape door at the back, and it was interesting to stand inside the sort of building they would have lived in as a family unit. It's a circular structure built primarily on wood and thatch, and in the middle of it is a hearth where the fire was, while people slept in small, designated, slightly raised, what effectively amounted to wooden frames filled with what appeared to be bark around the edge of the hut. As an aside, it felt quite similar to other structures I've seen around the world, which suggests that, just like the proliferation of pyramids, every civilization independently discovered the basic principles of mathematics and physics at a fairly early stage of development. Humans are a clever bunch, where necessary. Wonder what happened. Outside the hut, the tour goes along a trail through the woodland with information boards and interesting observations about life in the area and the general history of the contemporary culture. Then there's the hill itself. The hill fort is publicly accessible and popular with dog walkers. And, as you can imagine, it's a mound on top of a hill and one of several similar fortifications spanning a period of several thousand years in the area. This particular hill appears to have been the centre of a specific ritual whereby the people here built a huge wooden structure filled it with stones, set fire to it, and then covered it with earth. I wandered around on a guided tour, and it being early February in Northern Ireland on a weekday during a global pandemic, I was the only person on the said tour, purely so I could get a bit more of that background and context about the area. Inside the visitor centre, in the ceiling at the base of a dome, are artistic representations of the main players in the Ulster Circle, including Methva, the Bramble of Cooley, and Cúchulán himself. Obviously, there's a lot of artistic license when dealing with mythological figures from 2,000 years ago, but it somehow makes the tales more human, more accessible, more real. Ulster was just one of the traditional ancient kingdoms of Ireland. The numbers in reality varied, but overall they are commonly attested to have been five in total, the others being Leinster, Connacht, Munster, and one whose name didn't really survive as much in culture, Meath which is slightly awkward as the current county Meath in Ireland, is the location of the Hill of Tara, which in Irish mythology was the seat of the High King of Ireland, and therefore in modern parlance would have been seen as the capital. I'm due to finally road trip around Ireland in July with my friend Anne Law, and it's one of the places that's on our, well, my hit list. Uh, while some of the other ancient kingdom capitals have almost no remains left, this is Ireland we're talking about, a culture that feels like it lives and breeds that mix of myth, legend and history, like few other countries and societies do. So I'm sure there are other places we'll come across who will tell their own stories. I briefly mentioned Scotland in that tale. Of course, though being so close, there's always going to have been a lot of overlap. And historically, Scotland was invaded from Ireland around 1500 years ago. There's whole stories about people like St Columba who went from Derry in Ireland to Iona off the Scottish coast, for instance. But equally, Scotland has its own myths and legends separate to Ireland, which are all just as fascinating to me. And Nat from Nat Packer Travels agrees. 
this is one of the reasons I think why I love Scotland so much. There's so many myths and legends, and everyone knows them. Like, in my local area, no one actually knows any of the myths and legends, and it's crazy that we've lost this in Cheshire. And just, there are myths and legends about it. We just don't know them, and they're not passed on anymore. And for me, it really makes a place, and it's part of the history of the myths and legends. One such is around the Selkies, which Joanna Hastings now talks about. The tale of the Selkies that originated in places like Orkney and Shetland and the Western Isles of Scotland has a particular grip on me. I've always been fascinated by stories about creatures who could magically change between animal and human and the interactions they have with fully human people. The tale of the Selkies is about seals. A female seal came to shore and took off her sealskin to dance on the beach, becoming human. A watching fisherman stole her skin And because the girl couldn't change back into seal form without it, he compelled her to stay with him and marry him. Years later, one of her children found the skin by chance and showed it to her. She took it and returned to the sea forever, leaving her husband and children broken-hearted. There are many variations on this theme. It's particularly compelling because of the analogies to a lot of people's lived experience, feeling they can't be who they really are feeling that they must control or submit to being controlled by others, feeling that there's a huge dimension to their personhood which is being stolen from them, that they're not allowed to explore. The loss and injustice of that makes for a pretty gut-wrenching story, especially when fighting with love and loyalty. Add to that the dramatic landscape of the Scottish islands, the sea and the wind. It's great material to break your heart. It's very easy to imagine this actually happening when you're watching mist rolling over the Sea of the Hebrides. Interestingly, it was more than just a story to inhabitants of the islands till quite recently, maybe even today, I don't know. One well-known rumour holds that a family who tended to have unusual hard growths on their hands was descended from the marriage of a selkie and a human. The children were born with webbed fingers from their seal heritage, and the growths formed when they tried to cut the webs away. But literally true or not, sometimes I think I'm surrounded by selkies, people searching for themselves, and also fighting forces that deny them their own selfhood. Hopefully we'll all find our skins in the end. Water creatures are fairly common in Scottish myth, understandably so given the numerous islands, straits, lochs and rivers across the area. Another, of course, is that of the similarly named Kelpies, which have an entire monument dedicated to them just northeast of Falkirk. Kelpies, though, are horse-shaped creatures of death. They appear and encourage people, especially children, to ride them, at which point the Kelpie goes back into the waters, drowning and then eating the children. They are also believed to be shapeshifters and are noted to have devil-like hooves regardless of the form they appear in, betraying their origins and intent. Of course, water spirits are common across the globe, and Dana gives another example, from Latin America this time, and comes to a thought about why such stories are so commonly associated with children. Another folklore that I love comes from Mexico, Central America, South America region. It's La Llorona. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, She's kind of your standard woman in white. The way the story goes, there's a couple of different variations on it, but basically this is a woman that had one to two children, I believe it was two children in most stories, and for one reason or another, she drowns them and then kills herself. Generally, the variations I've heard is she was from a lower class, had hooked up with a fellow in a you know higher class bracket, and his, you know, bears some children. And finally, his family pressures him to cast her aside and get married to someone in his own class bracket, and he caves. And in a fit of desperation and not wanting to see her children starve, she kills them. You know, she drowns them and then kills herself. Another variation I've read is where it's more of a husband that is stepping out and cheating on his wife. And so in a fit of rage, she kills her, you know, drowns the children, kind of Medea style, and then kills herself in regret. Um, But either way, no matter what the variation that you read, generally what the end result is, is she drowns her children, kills herself. When she gets up to heaven, they ask her, where are your children? And she is denied entrance to heaven until she can show up with them in tow. 
And so she wanders the waterways looking for her children. But there's also a boogeyman kind of angle to the story in that if she she's looking for her children, but if she can't find her children, your children will do just nicely. And so there's also stories of her trying to lure children in. I've also heard stories of her saving children that were in the waterway and drowning. So like I said, there's different variations, but that is the general gist of it. But I just find it kind of a fascinating story because there are the variations. It's also sad. And I also find it fascinating that this is not just known to one local area. Like I said, it's known through Mexico, Central America, and Northern South America. And she is used as a boogeyman to children of if you do not behave, you know, you have to stay away from the waterways at night or La Llorona will come and get you. Which, if you think about it, kind of goes back to our old school fairy tales and that they were cautionary tales. You don't speak to strangers. You don't go off the path in the woods or something bad will generally happen. So I do find it interesting because small children, know should not be out at night without their parents. Should not be playing along the waterways, if especially if they can't swim. Because if something happens, you very well could die. So, yeah, it's one of my favorites. As you can hear, a lot of these stories, although similar worldwide, have very local identities, say to a particular river or a specific section of forest. And while some are well known, having been passed down from generation to generation, some, like Nat said earlier, have been largely forgotten about or indeed lost forever. Nat herself mentions one from her local area on her website, The Tale of the Wizard of the Edge, links in show notes, but here she is giving a brief overview of that very tale. The Wizard of the Edge is a local legend from Oldley Edge in Cheshire. Very briefly, the story goes that there was a farmer who had a white mare that he wanted to sell at Macclesfield Market. To get there, he had to go over Oldley Edge, and it was on the edge that he was stopped by an old man offering to buy the horse. He refused, saying that he would get a better price at the market. The old man then told him that he's not going to be able to sell his horse at market that day and he would wait for him on the edge that evening. The farmer obviously laughed, thinking there's no way it's going to happen, so carried on taking the horse to Macclesfield. At the market, he was unable to sell the horse, just like the old man said. So, on the way back, the old man was there waiting for him on the edge and this time the farmer agreed to sell the horse to him. The old man told him to follow him and took him to a rock face where he stopped pulled out a wand, tapped the rock face and it opened. He led the farmer and the horse inside and inside there were over a hundred knights all asleep on the floor. And next to every single knight except for one was a white horse asleep. So the old man took the horse from the farmer, laid it down next to the horse's night and sent it to sleep as well. He then told the farmer that at the end of the world, these knights would awaken and decide the fate in the last battle for the earth. Depending on which version you hear, he either did then pay the farmer or he didn't. Um, or the farmer ran away scared, basically. Now, at Oldley Edge, there is a carving of a wizard in one of the rock faces, which is meant to be where the cave is. And that sort of tale is quite common, with different variations across the country and no doubt the world. Even King Arthur and his knights are said in one tale to be lying in a cave waiting for the right moment to come alive and save England at its time of greatest need. There are those who'd argue he's running a bit late on that one. Sometimes, though, you just happen to live in a place whose very name is known worldwide because of a myth or a legend, you know, like Loch Ness or Roswell or even Rome, I guess. I spent some 15 years of my life in the town of Kirkby and Ashfield. It's not a terribly interesting place in and of itself, its name being partly Norse and meaning more or less church in the borough where there are ash trees. Despite living there for 15 years, I have no idea if there are ash trees there because I don't know what an ash tree looks like. Because I have other interests than the natural world, as you know. And even if you showed me a picture of an ash tree with a huge sign saying, this is an ash tree, I won't remember it and won't recall it if I saw one. But anyway... Every day that I walked to and from work, I crossed the River Erewash, an old English name meaning something like river that meanders through marshy or frequently flooded land. However, as far as I can gather, in post-Norman conquest England, the Erewash marked the western boundary of that area of land 
known as Sherwood Forest. Now, before I get into details, note that forest in this sense doesn't necessarily mean area of woodland and trees, although many ancient forests were indeed that. Rather, forest here means area set aside for royal prerogative, usually hunting. Everyday life was much more strict in a forest, as to all intents and purposes, everything was owned by the king. Which meant that you couldn't hunt for food. Or technically, even pick flowers. There were many forests in post-invasion England, some of which still survive today in name, and it must be said, planning legislation, if not in royal control, including the New Forest to the west of Southampton, the Forest of Dean, round where my uncle lives, Cannock Chase, north of the West Midlands, and Epping Stroke Waltham Forest, which I mentioned in my third London podcast. And each has its own tales, its own legendarium. Just don't mention escaped wild big cats. However, Sherwood Forest has its own quite famous, specific cast of characters who may or may not have existed, but whose tales have lasted to the present day. Sometimes it's quite surprising to people to hear that Sherwood Forest is a real place, and not somewhere that, you know, like Atlantis, is shrouded in myth and legend itself. Centred, kind of, on the town of Edwinstow, the area known as Sherwood Forest currently occupies about 420 hectares, or about twice the size of Monaco. In early medieval times, it was a lot bigger, occupying a quarter of the county of Nottinghamshire, or an area the size of Guernsey. Or a tenth of Bahrain, if that helps. Anyway, Sherwood Forest is of course famous for being the happy hunting ground of Robin Hood and his band of merry men, and Maid Marian, after whom one of the main roads in Nottingham is named after. Not a pretty road, but it's functional. It used to have the Robin Hood experience as a tourist attraction on it, but it closed over ten years ago due to underfunding. It's strange that Nottingham doesn't make as much of Robin Hood as you'd expect, although there is the statue of him just down the hill from Nottingham Castle, but it's not really a late 17th century manor house rebuilt in the late 19th century. The original castle was destroyed in the badly named English Civil War in the mid-1600s. The Robin Hood statue also is not actually complete because someone nicked the part of the bowstring. Students. Anyway, it's just up the hill from the oldest pub in Britain, which is the old trip to Jerusalem, commonly attested to 1189. Maid Marian Way, incidentally, has the oldest pub in Britain, the Old Salutation Inn from 1240, while right in the centre of the city is the Bell Inn, which is the oldest pub in Britain, dating from the 1430s. It may depend on what you call a pub, or even a building. All I'm going to say is that the Sal has the best beer range. But enough about that. There is a public footpath, the Robin Hood Way, that runs for 168 kilometres, or just over 100 miles, from Nottingham Castle to Edwinstow. It takes in many of the locations associated with the Robin Hood legend, including much of Sherwood Forest and Cresswell Crags. You may note, however, that by road, if you are walking it, the distance from Nottingham to Edwinstow is 19 and a half miles. That footpath takes a very, very circuitous route. I've actually walked a bit of it by accident near Harlow Wood to Friartook Well and the Forest Stone between Ravenshead and Mansfield. It wasn't well signposted and I got lost in a muddy field. The Forest Stone, by the way, is a commemoration of the location of an ancient forest court, or place where a court in the Royal Forest was convened and verdicts passed on wrongdoers. It's a lot more complicated and convoluted than that, but just pretend I'm a primary school teacher, okay? I'm not going to go into the tales of Robin Hood on this pod, partly because everybody knows them, but mainly because there are so bloody many of them, and they cover several centuries, many of them quite different from each other. This is largely like the Irish mythologies, which although collated a couple of hundred years after the event, there's generally only one version of them. The earliest mentions of Robin Hood, conversely, seem to be in written reports of people's oral tales from as far back as the turn of the 15th century, and this implies that they were already legendary stories even then. The earliest copies we have of the tales themselves come from later in that century. What I will say is that Robin Hood, as a name, isn't an uncommon one at the time. It's not like Cúchulain. I mean, it's not going to be as common as John Smith or Joe Brown, but a combination of a contemporarily popular first name coupled with what was effectively a job title, and many surnames developed from the concept that people were called either after their job, for example, John the Smith, and everywhere had a Smith of some description, or from a description of that person, for example, Joe with the brown hair. In both cases, at least one of their children would have had the same notable attribute. So in this case, hood would mean someone who makes hoods, or I guess someone who wears hoods. Remember too, apart from being cheesy love stories, the bulk of the tales of Robin Hood are largely around sticking it to the man, 
about cocking a snook at the authorities, about vigilantism, about revenge. These are all pretty common themes in humanity going back millennia. So the idea of any number of people doing just that in what effectively amounted to an authoritarian dictatorship is incredibly plausible, especially in an area like Sherwood Forest, which not only had extra legal restrictions, but also any number of places to hide. Cresswell Crags even has a Robin Hood cave, allegedly where he and his posse hid on the run, and at least one major trade supply route running through it, the Great North Road, which would now be the A1, technically not the M1, as that ventures a bit too far west, but we'll come on to that in a short paragraph. In addition, Robin Hood-like people did exist and are attested by contemporary sources. One of the most notable is Hereward the Wake, who operated further east in the Fenland country of Cambridgeshire and Lincolnshire in the years just after the Norman Conquest of 1066, and he was an anti-government agitator, and terrorist theoretically. Hereward's adventures themselves have been, shall we say, embellished by oral tradition and source biased, but it's believed that he was originally a man of noble standing in pre-conquest days and therefore already notable. It's possible, therefore, that a person or several people, either called Robin Hood or using that name as a common epithet or alias, because it would be hard to identify a specific person with that common a name, caused enough of a ruckus in northern Nottinghamshire to warrant people to take note, and his adventures were passed around the local villages, if nothing else, to provide hope for the common citizens. It just might be that he wasn't from as noble a background as Hereward, so history never recorded the original person. He was a someone just like you or me. Remember, in a world full of no-ones, be a someone. Be a time bomb. That said, everything surrounded Robin Hood is a mystery and a myth, even his area of operation. Although commonly seen in conflict with the Sheriff of Nottingham, Nottinghamshire is a reasonably expansive county, and parts are nearer places like Sheffield and Doncaster than they are to Nottingham itself. Sherwood Forest stretches quite away north, into Yorkshire. In addition, in several of the tales he is referred to as Robin of Loxley. Good luck finding Loxley in Nottinghamshire, it's a small area just north, north of Sheffield, on the way to Barnsley kind of, some 40 miles away from Nottingham itself. Also, one of Robin Hood's merry men, Little John, has a gravestone. He's attested to be buried in Hathersedge in the Hope Valley, some distance west of Sheffield, and equally about 40 miles from Nottingham. Both are on the opposite side of the current major travel route from London to the north, the M1, to Nottingham and Sherwood Forest. It's probably frustrating to Nottingham that Robin Hood Airport is the main airport serving, not Nottingham, that would be the frequently renamed East Midlands Airport, but rather South and East Yorkshire being near Doncaster, and again about 40 miles, almost due north of Nottingham. But at least it's on the right side of the M1, I guess. Of course, it's quite common for local places to latch on to a noted myth or legend. People seem to like nothing more than to make where they live interesting, and having a, a link or a connection to a notable myth provides just that. It just becomes more problematic if it becomes clear that there's no actual way for it to have been even remotely true. It's one thing claiming that, for example, Robin Hood used caves in northern Derbyshire and Nottinghamshire to hide out in. Even if he didn't exist, the in-story concept is internally consistent and plausible, because all of the tales put him in that general region. And one more story about a legendary figure isn't going to raise any eyebrows. Just because the original tales didn't have him, say, visiting the church in Kirkby and Ashfield, doesn't mean that he didn't. He certainly could have done. And if someone created, or shall I say, found a tale where he did just that, it wouldn't necessarily be dismissed. It would just be a stretch to say he'd done the same thing in one solitary tale near Coventry or York. Sometimes, though, that sort of thing does happen. Here's my friend V talking about a very debunked tale concerning an already legendary figure. One of the things that I like most about myths and legends is how they grow up and how we cling on to them, if they're a decent story, long after they've been shown to be demonstrably false. One such example is fairly local to me. Near where I live, there are a pair of villages, Aspley Guys and Woburn Sands, which used to be collectively known as Hogsty End. Hogsty End was known for its healing airs, possibly because of the abundant woodland that still surrounds it today, and people used to visit it to convalesce. Now, in the village, there is a house named Woodfield. It's old. We know it existed in 1868 when it was auctioned off as part of a larger estate, but otherwise it's unremarkable. Fast forward to 1925, when the UK government, for reasons that I don't quite understand and can't be bothered to look up, passed the Rating Valuation Act, which meant that every piece of land and property had to be valued to determine the rates on it. In 1927, Woodfield House was valued, noted to be owned by one Miss Key, but unoccupied and in a state of some disrepair after being neglected and empty for some time. 
That phrase would become key, haha, to the myth growing up. In the 1940s, the house passed to a Mr Blaney Key, who lived in Twickenham in Middlesex, and in 1947 he appealed the valuation put on the house, claiming that it was uninhabitable. At first he said that the house had been credited with an extra reception room, had a very awkward staircase that had replaced a ladder, and had been damaged considerably by enemy action during the Second World War. However, it transpired that the nearest bomb had fallen a mile and a half from the house, so then Mr Key explained that the house was in fact haunted. Mr Key told the committee that the early 18th century Dick Turpin, the notorious highwayman, was wont to frequent Aspley Woods as a hideout. Turpin knew the family living at Woodfield, most particularly the daughter of the house. She had a lover, and the father, outraged at the indiscretion, shut them both up in a cupboard, causing their death, as you do. This gave Turpin a cause to blackmail the man, to give him assistance and a place to stay and hide out. Mr Key explained that Turpin also extorted money from the old man, and gave it to the poor of the parish. Now, this seems a bit unlikely, not least because none of the other legends surrounding Turpin mention him having this altruistic streak, but also because, although it's fairly well-connected village now, being in the commuter belt, in those days Hogstye End was fairly tucked away from the main roads and thoroughfares, and would have been a very inconvenient place for a hideout. Anyway, the ghost of this unfortunate girl, Key claimed, still haunted Woodfield, making it a thoroughly undesirable place to live. The claim for a revaluation went to a hearing at which Arthur Parker, who was a local estate agent and historian, was able to undermine Key's tale by stating that the house had been built in the early 1820s, whereas Dick Turpin was hanged at York in 1739. A former maid claimed that she had seen arms coming through the wall while she was trying to sleep one night, but then rather undermined her own evidence by stating in answer to a question that she had in fact eaten cheese sandwiches for supper. Blaney Key's case collapsed. He did appeal, employing two different mediums, accredited by the Society for Psychic Research, no less, to hold seances in the house. They testified that they were satisfied that the house was haunted. However, Miss Dickinson, who was the tenant of the apparently uninhabitable house, undermined that by saying that although she had heard stories, she had never experienced any ghostly goings-on in the house. In the end, Mr Key's case was dropped, and he had to pay the full amount of tax that he owed on the property. Now, despite the obvious holes in Mr Key's story, including a point raised in the trial that the story bore a remarkable similarity to a story about Dick Turpin that had been published some 65 years before that, the house has failed to shake its reputation, becoming the scene of ghost hunting activities and seances that even happen today. Despite knowing that the entire story was concocted by a man trying to reduce his tax bill, believers insist that either the Turpin incident happened in a previous house on the same site, or that the murder did happen at the current house, but the part about Turpin is a fabrication. The property is still locally known as the ghost house, though, and it is said that on foggy nights, you can still hear the echoing of hoofbeats down the lane as the ghost of Dick Turpin rides through the village. It is interesting to see how new tales, new myths begin. You only have to look at tales of big cats, of alien encounters, of crop circles, to see examples of new myths and legends being created. Often, these are entirely new stories based on people's misreading of physics, like the Morpholites, or not being able to accurately judge sizes and distances outside of daylight, like tales of creatures like Mothman or Nessie, that sort of thing. And it's fascinating to think that's how long-established myths were established, especially in those imposing spaces like mist-covered woodland, where your senses are already at a disadvantage, or about creepy houses in a state of ruin, about which few people know any real details. So what have we learned in this episode? Myths and legends can be old, dating back to times before written historical records. Or they might be created last Thursday after the experiences of two people in the dusky forest. They run the whole gamut of human experience and activity, from recounting tales of battling armies and rival kingdoms, to embellish stories about folk heroes standing up for the people, to cautionary tales that parents tell their kids when they want them to behave or be careful. Many of them involve animals, both friendly and aggressive. Death either heroically fighting against it or being embraced by its chill. But also hope that we get through life safely and that we will live in a better world at the end than we did at the start. I wonder if a legendary item like Excalibur is tax deductible. Well, that's about all for this episode, though I'm absolutely sure it's a subject I'll come back to since there's any number of myths and legends I've encountered on my travels. In this episode, I just wanted to stick to ones that were local to people. So join me next time for another adventure. Beyond the Bruce. Quite to where, I haven't worked out yet. I'm sure it'll be exciting and informative.
Speaking of exciting and informative, by the way, my VA has worked wonders and I now have a newsletter. The first edition should be available on the 1st of June and future releases are planned to be monthly, again on the 1st. It'll probably replace my Facebook group because that's really not an active space. Sign-up details will be in the show notes. But until then, keep away from the water's edge. And if you're feeling off colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass Bonus by Kai Engel, which is available by the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or you can email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. The podcast has a Facebook group at travel.tales.beyond.brochure, and I have a Patreon for access to rare extra content. That's patreon.com slash traveltalesbeyondbrochurepod. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now.